Dave Steele, thanks for coming. We don't have a real fancy start. We kind of just start. Perfect. I'm drinking, uh, this is a Lamborghini energy drink. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. (laughs) I've not. I haven't either, actually. This is new. Gets you through the day? No, I've never had it. It's not usually my cup of tea, literally, but uh, they are uh, leveraging the Lamborghini brand and extending it past cars into this and that and the other thing and, and maybe real estate. Um, and this is an energy drink and I don't, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but you know, I, I said before taking the meeting, it'd probably be good to taste it. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do right now. It tastes exactly like Red Bull. <laughs> I'm sure it's not an accident either. <laughs> anyway, not bad. Thanks for coming, Dave. Appreciate it. Nice to see you. Yeah. Great to see you. I've always really liked you. <laughs> I think probably cause you're in real estate and you know, you're just such a, affable and charming guy and uh and you know welcomed me into eo all those years ago that's probably a good place to start i think you know i'm obviously passionate about eo and i would love to hear uh i know you were one of the founding members and traveling to gather entrepreneurs into this new thing why don't you share with listeners you know the story of how eo started and and kind of what it was like in the early early days compared to today yeah i mean it was 35 years ago and um we got invited down to an event in Texas, and there'd been a group of mostly American entrepreneurs, about a dozen or 15 of them, yeah. that had been meeting once a year and putting on these kind of three-day events. And we went down and, and they said, look, we really want to get this entrepreneurs organization to be something much bigger. And we kind of came away and said, yeah, let's mirror it after YPO, which is chapter events and you know, really bring entrepreneurs from around the world. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's been 35 years. It just exploded. I was the fourth international uh, president. Uh, The Canadian EO members that were really at the beginning in the founding stage really kind of were were huge drivers of building the organization. And uh, it just took off. Today, I think there's 12,000 members around the world and chapters just about every country. Um, But, you know, back when we started, you know, the fourth year we had... I think the year I took over, we had 400 members. And when I left, we had about 1,200. In the world? Um, in the world. And, wow. you know, I remember we flew uh, and opened the chapter in London. And, you know, it was a unique time because it was a it was a bootstrapped organization. So when you said, hey, I'll take on opening the London chapter, it meant you got to fly to London on your own dime, <laughs> stay, stay in London at a hotel. And like, you know, everything, there, you know, there was no, hey, there, there's, there's no expenses. expense account. Yeah, there was no expense account. So it was... I mean, it really was a bunch of wild ass entrepreneurs and, and, uh, you know, and it was phenomenal because it was such a buzz because you'd go into all these other cities and countries and conferences and there'd be, you know, as you know, you show up and there's entrepreneurs from, you know, Chicago and Dallas and LA and, you know, Zurich and India and, and China. And, you know, next thing you know, you're like, you know, you're talking to people about their crazy businesses all around the world. So I love, it. um, yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, you, you set out in life to, you know, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, um, you know, and you always set out like looking for the thing that's going to really be the most memorable thing you do in your entrepreneurial career. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I'd say probably if, you know, if I looked at it today, the most memorable thing for me was being involved in the starting of EO because it's just become such a cool organization and it's going to, you know, it's going to live for, it's going to live way past all of us. Right. Yeah. That's a cool thing to say. Thank you. I mean, I believe it to be true too. I mean, look where we started. I know right. I've got so much I want to hear from you today. Like the, 
you know, your success in real estate. I want to hear about three boys houseboats. I want to hear about all of it. Um, but yeah, look where we started with the O. It's been an amazing experience for me too. I love the people more than anything. Uh, it's just a really target rich environment for me. You know, I could sit down and talk with just about any other member for hours and, you know, have so much in common with them and uh, just enjoy every minute of it. Well, it's life changing, yeah. right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's just finding, you know, they say you sort of find your tribe. I think it's the same in your company, right? You hope to find, you hope to find like-minded people that are really part of who you are and, and, you know, you're, you're all part of that same tribe. And, you know, obviously it's the, you know, EO is just a much, much larger scale of, yeah. um, you know, just, just how many friends you end up having around the world that are. Oh, it's that, unexpected bonus yeah. for me. I never saw that coming, but it's been so nice. You know, there's a major city in the world where I don't have somebody to call and it feels pretty good. Right. And we're on the past president's council together now. <laughs> I always appreciated that's, your... That's the best honor is to be member at large and past president. Yeah. Because then you get to just enjoy the benefits after <laughs> yeah. having put in all the work. No, they suck me back on the board. I'm <laughs> yeah, on the board. of course. Yeah. Um, but I always appreciated your, uh, you know, advice to me and also supported me in... Uh, my leadership style of EO when it was my turn to be president. And it was, I'm sure you remember, but the flavor was uh, sort of like non curtailed, you know, it was like, these are in any organization as it grows, as, as it gets as huge as it is now, there's naturally some bureaucracy and some of that type of stuff comes in to get things organized. But your advice and your input on, on leadership has always been, I remember one conversation we had where I shared sort of, advice I'd, I'd heard about how, you know, like imagine EO is a mighty ship traveling across the ocean and your chance to lead is just one small segment of that. In truth is one year, but it's in, imagine this long journey, you're just captaining the ship for one small segment. So your job is to just don't sink the ship. You don't even change the course, like just do your part and just keep going. And I remember that look came up on your face. I see right now. And it, it, it kind of offended you. It's, uh -huh. It goes against the grain, I think, of what you feel it is in its heart and soul. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, I think you you spend a lot of time and energy on. I mean, it's if you really think about it, you know, you go to work every day and you do that because you get rewarded financially. Right. And obviously in other ways. And yet all of a sudden you you become active in an organization like this and you look and you realize I'm spending more of my day on EO than I am on my job. And you're like, well, why is that? What's, what's that driver? What's that motivation? Right. And there's something about it that it's just like, it just, it captures you and it owns you. And, you know, it's not money and it's not recognition. It's just something you feel really great about doing. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I always tell people that whatever that thing is, part of it is you get to make a big change and you get to have a chance to make a big change. And so, don't let the system suck you in and take the fun stuff away because you think about it, you're taking your time away from something else that's really valuable. Mm -hmm. So whatever that, that thing is, make sure you're getting, you know, yeah, you go for some, it, right? Yeah. Go for get it. Get your just, stamp on it. Yeah. Like, just leave your stink on it if you have to. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I appreciated it. Yeah. Good one. I'm and I think I, I would pass it along to anybody who, who asked as well. I think it's definitely the way to go in our current chapter. Uh, president has a great vision for this coming year and um, he will definitely leave his stamp on it in a good way. Well, I mean, we're lucky in Vancouver too, because our chapter has been, 
you know, it's really been one of the chapters around the world that everybody's really aspired to be, you know, year after year, not, you know, not, not every few years, Vancouver, but Vancouver has consistently been one of the great chapters in EO. And, and, you know, you notice it when you go and you go to international events and you talk to other, other uh, cities and, you know, they really have high regard for Vancouver. So that's a cool part too. They call us a mega chapter now. Do they? Yeah. I didn't know that. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I know because it's a small city, but uh, yeah, we have 165 members in Vancouver and uh, I guess maybe it's because we're over 150 or something. It's actually quite large for a chapter. Wow. There is a size at which the chapter gets actually too big, apparently. I think maybe it's 200 or 250, but at a certain point, you know, there's an intimate family feeling tribe, you called it. Right. And at a certain number, you start going to an event and seeing people you maybe think you've never seen before, you don't know, and it doesn't feel kind of as safe and as close as it did. And so they suggested a certain size chapter should break up, but never. <laughs> <laughs> Toronto broke up in sort of like a, you know, based on the category of business, which is interesting. They have gold for the bigger businesses and sort of regular. Do they? Yeah. I guess people trying different things. The entrepreneur flavor is still in it. So where did your entrepreneurship journey begin? Uh, I think it always began when I was really, really young. Um, I grew up out east. And, uh, you know, one of the very first things, I think I was 11 or 12 years old. And um, there was a work camp at the end of our town. And all the workers worked there. And there was a, a kid also, you know, my age. And he had gone and got a newspaper. He got the newspapers delivered uh, for the St. John's newspaper and it was delivered and he would sit out in front of the mess hall before every meal and he would sell the newspapers. And I watched him for, I don't know, maybe a couple months or something. Next thing I knew, was, where was this? I'm trying to pick this is in Labrador, okay. Churchill Falls, Labrador. And, um, and I remember after, you know, a couple months, all of a sudden he had a brand new skidoo. A 12 year old kid and he had a brand new skidoo. Wow. And I was like, man, this that is. makes an impact. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Okay. What's he got going here? Like, There's got to be some money in this thing. Yeah. With so obviously I couldn't get the Newfoundland newspaper, but maybe 25% of all the people coming into the mess hall were from Quebec. So I got the French Canadian uh, newspaper and I set up at the table right next to him. And, um, and I sold the French Canadian newspaper for a couple of days. And then after a couple of days, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, there's no sense both of us sitting here. Why don't I just give you like a thousand bucks and I'll buy the Quebec paper and I'll just sell both papers at the same time. So I said, OK, no problem. Yeah. So that was the first kind of business thing that I got into. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, you sold it. Yeah, I didn't I didn't go buy a new skidoo or anything, but it was like it was a it was a cool. I thought that of, story was going to go the other way. I thought he was so rich. He wanted to go ride his skidoo. No, no. And he's going to pay you to sit there and no. sell paper. Yeah. So, I mean, I think just, you know, always at a young age, I just always sort of had an entrepreneurial uh, kind of an entrepreneurial flavor. And uh, it's a cool start, though, because a lot of. Entrepreneurs, um, you know, we talk about this in forum a lot and uh, a lot of people end up being self. There's a difference between being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are actually self-employed, including myself to some degree, you know, unless you are able to, uh, you know, sell your business or, or not be there and not be missed and have everything run perfectly then in some ways you've created, you know, a job for yourself. And that's very different than being in my mind, like a, a true entrepreneur, a true business owner. It's an important distinction, but I think you had a, such a good start. I mean, you started with like, I know this is, this is entrepreneurship, right? You know, you, you 
create something at value, sell it. Yeah. And it was kind of weird, you know, cause back, you know, when I graduated high school, kind of late seventies, you know, entrepreneurship really wasn't a thing, right? Like over time it's become, you know, entrepreneurship is kind of today, almost like being an accountant or a lawyer. Right, I majored like a, in entrepreneurship in university. Right. So I, I got a commerce degree and, and the last year getting my commerce degree at the university of Calgary, I was a president of the university ski club. And we put on lots of big parties and ski trips and stuff. And, you know, we had a huge membership in the ski club because we got known pretty well for putting on great parties. And um, towards the end of the school year, uh, a buddy of mine came up to me in, in, in one of my classes and said, I want to put on the biggest party in the history of the University of Calgary. And uh, he said, and the only way we can do it is we have to do it through an association like a ski club. So we put on a party on the last day of school. It started at three o'clock in the afternoon and went till three o'clock in the morning. We bust people out to a ranch. Um, we brought in the El Toro bucking machine from Gilly's Bar in Texas. Oh, right. um, and we had male and female mud wrestling. Uh, we had four bands playing, you know, everything you could drink. Um, and it was like, a, you know, it was called the buck off. Yeah. And it was a huge, huge deal. And we had uh, 800 tickets. That we sold, and, and I still remember this. So the day, uh, you know, we got all the all the big companies to sponsor us, and they gave us jerseys for the security people. Um, you know, we had we had the football team agree to be the sponsors out of, or the the security guys out at this ranch. Perfect. Um, and so we went and we bought the we got the posters made up and had all the sponsors logo. And as we were driving into the University of Calgary, my buddy Phil and I, he, you know, he looked at me and he goes, look at that line. I wonder what that lineup's for. So, of course, we wander over to the line. We go, what's the lineup for? And they go, oh, the tickets just went on sale for the buck off this party at the end of the year. But the guy goes, yeah, we've been here for three hours. I don't think we're going to get a ticket. Like, it's all already sold out. Now, we have 500 posters under our arms to put up to, you know, market to sell the tickets. But the word had just like, no you worries. know, shot through. So we sold 800 tickets. Sold out like in, you know, in hours kind of thing. Oh, that must have been a rush having that person say that. Yeah, yeah. I've was... been there. I've done the same thing. <laughs> same type of party, university, same thing. But it didn't go that way. Now, the only problem we had is that somebody else also decided that they were going to go and print 800 tickets. So we ended up having 1,600 people oh, come to the party. So, so some, uh, some fake scalper. Some fake person. scalper guy who, you oh. know, one of those things you don't yeah. find out until you run into him in a bar 15 years later and he kind of confessed. Did uh, that happen? Oh, yeah. True story. <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, he, so, it weighed on him. He had to tell you. I guess. Yeah. So, you know, it was kind of cool because... Um, uh, the, my partner who we did the party with was uh, Phil, Phil Carroll. And, um, you know, we ended up being business partners for 30 some years um, as a result of it. Phil Carroll, is that three boys? Three boys. Yeah. So, so as a result of that, we ended up, you know, trying no you know, dozens and dozens of like crazy business ideas. Um, but really, you know, the cool thing was, you know, here we are in our last year of university. We're so into doing this party that we're both going to flunk out because we're not going to class. You know, we're, we're, there's no interest in what's going on. All we're, all we're interested in is, you know, who's talking to the guy at the Gillies Gillis bar and to get the El Toro fucking yeah. machine through customs and, you know, which girls are going to do the female mud wrestling and where are we going to get the, where are we going to find the mud? Cause we had to go to like get drilling mud to go in the mud pit for the mud wrestling. And so anyhow, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it was a lot of work. And we literally, you know, we skated through the last year. Um, 
<laughs> you know, I might claim to fame. I tell people I graduated in the top 10% of the bottom third of my class, which is like barely. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a fun thing, but the real thing that came out of it is we, we, we were like, yeah, we definitely can work together. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, something similar to what you just said is that, you know, we looked at each other and said, like, we're, we're different than everybody else. Like, like we talk and do, th like we think of things that that other people are freaked out by the risk or what that's got to do, and like that risk doesn't even come in until way late in the thought process. We're just doing it, and then it's like, okay, how do we do this to get that risk out of it? As opposed to, yeah. no, I'd never do that. It's too risky. Yeah. So yeah, I've been there. We yeah. rented a hockey arena, <laughs> a similar concept called it Final Frenzy. I'll send you the poster that I hand drew. Uh, it's pretty bad, but it was fun. I think we maybe had a similar number of people there, but it wasn't as easy. We had, uh, we went to Ticketmaster, so we didn't have our tickets copied or frauded. Uh, they took a huge commission and, um, at the end of the, we were the, the arena, but the venue was too big. That was our problem. And to fill it, we ended up sending buses downtown, pulling people out of bar lineups and stuff, like piling them on for free just to fill the place and get all the beer sold and stuff. But, uh, it was pretty fun. Good learning experience too. Wow. Did you ever think about doing it again? You know, we didn't because, um, I mean, we, we literally just went from, from there. We went from idea to idea. We were going to start a car wash. We had uh, registered the name starving students car wash. Um, you know, we had sites in Calgary. We were going to do a couple of car washes we had, uh, I mean, we just had a whole bunch of crazy ideas that yeah. we, you know, kind of, as soon as we were finished one, we were, you know, then we were trying to figure out how do we find a business that we can get out of our job and do. Yeah, I get it. Been there too. <laughs> do you want another beer? No, I'm good. Thank you. Um, sorry about my voice. No you know, problem. I had uh, a, boat, a little bit of a boat party last week and uh, seven of us tied up in Bedwell Bay and the uh, rain came in and mine is the only kind of indoor boat. So it got real popular when the weather turned. <laughs> we had 40 people on it at one point. And it was shoulder to shoulder. And I think one of my beloved friends has gave me a head cold about five days ago and I'm uh, through it now. But uh, the remnants are still, you know, making my voice pretty, pretty bad, making some people's eyes water, I'm sure. So tell me about uh, your work with Phil and how you ended up at Three Boys. Anything significant in between there? Well, so then we graduated university and um, and Phil got went out and got a job as a financial planner and I got a job as a mortgage broker. So I got a job as a mortgage broker, um, thought it was a pretty, didn't know anything about it, literally, you know, got the job, was excited I had a job. Um, and the only thing I didn't realize is interest rates were on the way up. And within a few months of having the job, interest rates hit 20%. So here I am out trying to sell money to people to build things with 20% interest rates. Yeah. And nobody's, nobody's buying. Of course. Right? Um, however, I've kind of found a little niche. There was a you know, there was a whole bunch of social housing projects where the government had special rates for people with social housing projects. So we found Kinsman and Kiwanis. And so, you know, I, I did pretty well and I found a few clients. Hustled. Um, hustled. And then um, one weekend we were going to go skiing. We were going up to Silver Star and Vernon. So we drove uh, three of us, Phil, myself and another buddy of ours, Rob, and we got in the car and we drove to Vernon from Calgary. And on the way through Sycamuse, we, you know, huge dump of snow. We're like, oh, can't wait to get skiing. And on the way through Sycamuse, there's this little strip of marinas that runs through Sycamuse. And we drove down there and we looked down and there were these houseboats. 
And I'd never seen a houseboat, neither had Phil. We had no idea what it was. And we looked down and we go to the guy at the front and we go, hey, what are these? Oh, people rent them for a week in the summertime. They're really fun. And um, we said, you know, can we rent one? And the guy looks on his chart and he goes, well, you can't rent next summer, but you can rent the following summer. So Whoa. We, so we went to the next place and they said the same thing and the next place and they said the same thing and the next place and they said the same thing. So anyhow, we're driving along. And we're now halfway between, we're maybe 10 minutes outside of Sycamus on the way to Vernon. And, um, and we're still talking, we're just kind of mesmerized by these houseboats. And, and, uh, and I said, and I remember saying, either I said, or Phil said, I said, you know, this is crazy. Like we should, why don't we just build a couple of these? Right. And Rob, our friend in the back, who's a carpenter said, heck, I could build them. You, you could build them. Oh yeah. Easy. I could build these houseboats. So. Before I even knew what was going on, Phil made a right turn off the road. He's turning down this guy's driveway and he jumps out of the car and he goes up and he knocks on the door. And I go, what are you doing? And he says, come on, come on. So we go to the front door and he says to the guy, how much would you rent us your Quonset hut for? The guy says, what? A big garage? Big garage, big like barn Quonset hut. And he, he must've seen it on the side of the highway and he looked down. He said, how much would you rent that for? And the guy says, I'll rent it to you for 50 bucks a month. <laughs> Phil says, we'll take it. <laughs> So we get back in the car, we turn around. Now, instead of going to Vernon, we turn around and we drive back to Sycamus. And we start driving up and down the marina again, looking at the boats. And, you know, now we, we got to like, like now we're building these two houseboats. We're going to build where we get the money. Don't know yet. We'll figure that out later. Yeah. And um, we drive along. And sure enough, at the end of the road, right on the water, is a marina for sale for $125,000. So... We get out, we call the realtor, the realtor comes by, says, you can put a dock in here, boom, boom, boom. An hour later, we wrote an offer on the marina, okay, the little house with a dock in front of it, good, wow. enough to, good enough to house a bunch of boats. Yeah. So we got in the car, so we stayed overnight in Sycamus, we checked out all the, all the boats again. Pretty good first day. Yeah. We get in the car, we drive home. The day we get home, like the Sunday, Rob loads up his truck, packs everything up and drives back to Sycamus. And starts ordering pontoons and railings and everything else and says, you guys go figure out where to get the money. I trust you guys will get the money. I'm going to start building the boats. So we come back out a week later and the Quonset hut is full. Like it's got lumber and pontoons are ordered oh and and paint and gel coat and railings and you name it. Right. And we're like, like, how are you paying for this? And he goes, hey, you guys told me you're the finance guys. You figure that out. Yeah. So we get in the car. And, um, you know, we go see a bunch of bankers in Calgary and they say, hey, guys, it's 20% interest rates. Nobody's, we're not lending money. And by the way, we you need, go talk, you need to go talk to someone in Sycamus. We don't lend money to people unless you're in Calgary. So we drive out to Sycamus and we meet all the little local bankers and they're all like, no, 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 you don't understand. We don't lend money to businesses in Sycamus, right? You need to go find a different banker. So we go to Kamloops and we walk into the Bank of Montreal in Kamloops and we're like, you know, we've been to 13 bankers. They've all said, no, this guy's number 14. We walk in, we sit down at his desk. He goes, you're not going to believe this, but my wife and I, we rent houseboats every year. And somebody needs to come in and build new houseboats. Oh, perfect. The boats there are terrible. Like they don't have childproof railings. They don't even have fridges that work. They don't have stereo systems in them, you know, and on and on and on. And we're like, oh, this is awesome. So yeah. we get talking to him and- a week later, he approved the loan for us to be able to buy the marina and build the two boats. No way. So 
Um, so every weekend we'd get in our car and we'd drive out and Rob, our carpenter friend would save the crappiest jobs for us. Like he would save you know, anything <laughs> like, Oh, guess he's been working all. Yeah. Week. Yeah. I guess who's got a gel coat, the roof with fiberglass, right? Like yeah. the worst job in the world. Right. Um, so, you know, we would, we would just do all this stuff and, and we, and we were terrible. Like neither of us are at all handy. And, um, but it was fun. I mean, we would just, we would do it. And then, you know, every second or third weekend, all of a sudden we'd be like, okay, we got to go to Edmonton and do a trade show to find renters to rent the boat or go to, you know, to go to a mall and set up a booth. And meanwhile, I'm still a mortgage broker and Phil's still a financial planner. And, and, um, you know, slowly the words getting around that we've got these two houseboats, right? So this goes on and, um, you know, goes on in June. You mean two coming? Like they're not built yet? Or no, we, we built them. So we built done. them. This happened This happened in, say, January yeah. when we did the trip. And then we built the boats and they were going to be delivered by the May long weekend. Okay. So they're ready for the May long weekend. So in, you know, May and June, we're coming out every weekend. Now, now Phil and I are coming out and we're cleaning the boats and we're pumping the sewage out. And we're, you know, I mean, Rob's sort of there in town. But, you know, he's sort of the builder guy and he's like, hey, I'm working my butt off building these like you guys need to figure out. The well, he's done at that point. He's done his two, right? He's done his two. But there's still, you know, he's designing next year's boats. Okay. And we're trying to figure out, hey, can we make this thing? And hey, maybe we could build a couple more. Right. So word now got, gets back to my bosses. I work for two guys and word gets back to them. And they're like, and this is now it's like July. And they're like, hey, Dave, like everywhere we go, all we hear is houseboats, houseboats, houseboats. We want to be hearing mortgages, mortgages, mortgages. <laughs> we don't want to be hearing houseboats, right? And yeah. uh, he says, look, you got to make a decision. you got to make a decision. I said, all right, what's what's the decision? He said, well, you got to decide. you got the weekend to decide, but either go do the houseboat thing full time or drop the houseboats, sell those two boats off and come and do this. And by the way, you're making good money. Um, uh, you know, you're making good money. So just make a decision. So we go to the lake, we drive up there that weekend, and we're pretty sure at this point, look, we got two boats. It's kind of been fun, but, you know, Phil's making good money as a financial planner. I'm kind of in the, I'm, you know, thinking there's maybe a career here. So on the drive up on the Friday, we're convinced we're going to sell the two boats. And we tell Rob, hey, we're going to sell the two boats. And he goes, oh, man, that's great because the big competitor in town has seen the boats I built and they want to build 20 next year. So, you know, I really want to go with them. Because like there's a real future building 20 boats. Like it's not that great for me to build two, build yeah. 20. I'm kind of excited. So we're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And we get up the next day. And then for some reason, we both looked at each other and just said, you know what? We're, we're going to quit our jobs. And uh, so we get back in. I go to my boss Monday morning and I go, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm going to quit my job. And they go, well, look, just before you decide, I just got to tell you that you know, the, you've got these deals closing in the next three months and you're going to get like a fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 commission, which is a lot of money for me at that time. And by the way, if you're not here when those deals close, you don't get the commission, right? And I'm yeah. like, oof, okay. So that hurts. Yeah. So I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. I'm quitting, you know, thanks a lot. Um, so I go, I give notice on my apartment, move out of my apartment, move into Phil's parents' basement house. Um, Look at my car. I got a brand new Volvo. Can't afford the lease payment. So I give the Volvo back. Call my girlfriend who lives just outside of Calgary. And I go, hey, you know, come on by. So we get together. And I go, yeah, I just, you know, quit my job. I can do this full time. And she says, you know where this is going, right? <laughs> yeah. she, she goes, well, that's great. But, you know, you're spending way too much time away anyhow. So, yeah. um, you know, it's probably time we split up. 
So I wake up Tuesday morning. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> what am I, I lost my job, my car, my apartment, my girlfriend. Wow. And that's and, everything. Yeah. And that's it. And we're going to, and we're going to build these two and we've got two houseboats and, and by the way, if we want to continue now, we don't even have a builder. Yeah. Right. Um, so living in Phil's basement, um, at his parents' house, he's still working as a financial planner. Um, and we ran into an accountant who was a really smart guy, good friend of ours. And he said, you know, there's this tax act that if you build a houseboat and you sell it to somebody, they can totally depreciate the value of the houseboat and write it off against their income over a three-year period. So if you bought a $75,000 houseboat yeah. or a doctor, even if it, you know, if you rented it and made enough just to pay your, your loan on it, you'd get $25,000 a year in tax write-offs. Wow. So, so we're like, wow, the, the, I think we can sell that. Let's go. Yeah. Like, like if we can show people how better our houseboats, because our boats were chocker block booked. We got a premium over everybody else. And everybody was like, man, you guys have nice boats. You should build more of these. Right. So we get on the phone and we start calling people and we call and we call and we call. And, and finally, at one point, after like two months of doing this, we're now heading into the fall. Uh, Phil's brother who was a, had a master's in hotel management from Cornell, really smart guy. He said, guys, you're missing the point here. People aren't going to give you $75,000 unless they can see it, touch it, feel it. So like charter a plane, get your six or seven or 10 hottest people, fly them out there, show them why your boats are nicer than everybody else, put on a barbecue. And, you know, I, th I think you'll sell some boats. And we're like, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. So we call up the the charter airline and we book it for like a, the following Saturday. And um, we've got some pretty hot guys. We've got a, a an ophthalmologist. We've got a real estate guy. We've got a, a young kid who just inherited some money. So we call all these people. We say, we're doing this flight on Saturday. Can you make it? And so they all say yes. So we've got seven people and we all show up at the private airport and we're just about to load onto the plane. And just as we get onto the plane, they said, um, due to icing over the mountains, we can't fly today. No, no. So all seven people get in their car, drive away. We call them the next day, the day after, and like one by one, they all gave us, you know, yeah, you know, I had time to think about it. It's not oh. for me. And so we lost all our investors, right? Wow. So we're like, okay, well, like this is a sign, right? It's time to, it's time. It's just time. You tried. We tried, right? Yeah. And, um, so we call the airline and we go, hey, you know, the $5,000 deposit that we put up, can we get that back? Because we bought it from Phil's mom and, and she wants it back and we got to give her back her money. Yeah. And the guy goes, look, I'm really sorry, but you know, you didn't read, you got to read your contract. Your contract says if we cancel, we don't give you back your money. You can use the flight another time. So maybe you go next spring. And we're like, no, we're not going next spring. You got to be kidding. So we looked at each other and we said, well, I guess there's no choice then. We got to book it next weekend. And then we said, well, but we don't have anybody. Like we don't, we don't even have a, forget a hot lead. We don't have a warm person that we've talked to. Right. And we're like, well, we're not giving up the $5,000. So let's book it again. And so we just started literally he took doctors i took dentists he took accountants i took lawyers and we just went through the phone book no and we just called and we called and we called
Boiler room. And it was boiler room. And Tuesday night we went out and we're out in a bar having dinner. And next thing we know, we hear these two guys talking and we moseyed up to their table. And next thing you know, they were booked. They were coming on the flight. And over the course of five days, we got seven more people and their spouses to come on the flight. So the offering to those investors was that we'll sell you a houseboat. You can write it off 100% over three years and still own the houseboat. And then we'll put it in a rental program. We'll manage it for you. And the rental income will pay for your loan payment. And you'll get to use it like a cabin a couple times in the off season, once during the regular season. Yeah, timeshare. Yeah. And well, like a, like your vacation place, right? Yeah. So we got everybody in the plane and literally we got to the airport and God shone on the day. It was the brightest blue sky day. Oh, in fact, worried. in fact, it was so blue sky that, blue. On, that on the flight home, the plane, after we flew over the Rockies, flew above the highway between Banff and Calgary on the way home. Like literally just like, just like beautiful, sunny blue sky. And we got there, we had a barbecue, we took the investors out on the boat. Um, perfect day. Yeah, perfect day. And we got home and we, so we looked at each other Monday morning. Okay, you got your four guys, I got my three guys, let's go see them. And we so spent the whole day, we met back at Phil's house at 4.30 that afternoon, sat down at the table, popped open our briefcases. Between the two of us, we had seven checks for 50 grand each. The first houseboats cost 50 grand. No way. Seven checks for 50 grand with $350,000. Nice. So we had the money to pay his mom back for the flight. That's so cool. And uh, and then the only thing we had to figure out then was how to build them, how to operate them, how to <laughs> do everything to- Easy. But How'd you get your buddy back, the builder? Um, Same kind of crazy story. We didn't get him back. We were driving down the highway couple days later, a week later on the way to Sycamus, and a truck passed us with a houseboat on it. And we turned a car around, raced the guy down the highway, got him at the next stop. Where'd you get that? Who built over. it? Yeah, who built it? Where's the guy? We found him and said, would you move to Calgary and build these houseboats? Nice. And the guy goes, well, Calgary, why would I move to Calgary? And we said, well, because we're going to build them in Airdrie outside of Calgary. Interest rates are 20%. Ralph Klein was the mayor. And... Um, and we thought if we, we, we want to be, have the houseboat construction close to where we live so we can actually pay attention and, you know, it's a it's going to be a big job. And so when we announced that we were going to build the houseboats in Airdrie just outside of Calgary, one of the news outlets called us and said, we're going to break this story. But the deal is we're going to come out there tomorrow at 8 a.m. If anybody breaks this story on us before us, when we come out tomorrow, we're going to turn around and drive home. But we'll be there at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. So we called every other media outlet and said, hey, come out tomorrow at noon. And they all came. <laughs> and over the course, you know, again, you know, the, the the city at the time had a thing called Yes, We Can. And they were trying to find a way because the, the world was mired in this terrible recession and 20 percent interest rates. And nobody was trying anything. And it was like, here was these two crazy 22 year old kids that were building houseboats and people were just like. I don't get this, right? Yeah. And so CBC came out. It was on the CBC National News. It was on like, uh, you know, Good Morning Canada AM. It was just, it just went everywhere. And and like literally we, you know, we got our sound bites on the news so strong that people would call and say, I'm going to drive to Airdrie. Can you have the contract done up? I want to buy one of the houseboats. 
Wow. Like it wasn't even come and tell me about it. It was like, I'm driving there. I have my check. And over the course of the two weeks after that, we sold another 13. And we end up that first year having 20 houseboats. I guess people want to own a houseboat. And that was like the only way. The first time they'd heard of how is a cool well, idea. Yeah, I think I think it I think it hit a whole bunch of, you know, I think it hit a whole bunch of veins. It was, you know, again, it was um, you know, there were all kinds of MERBs and tax write-offs and stuff that people were uh, you know, people were doing and and it was just uh, you know, so we we just targeted from there on in, we just, you know, for the next kind of six, seven years, we sold um, 1,200 houseboats. Wow. We opened on 10 different marinas in five states in the U.S., uh, six marinas in Canada, and one in the Virgin Islands. Wow. And, um, you know, biggest claim to fame is that when we hit 1,211 houseboats, um, we got flown to New York to go on show like Good Morning America uh, because we officially had more boats than the U.S. Navy. Really? <laughs> so, Holy cow. So you so, ended up in the houseboat sales business and management business, I guess. Resort. Really, the, really, it was the, it was kind of, it was kind of the first concept of how do you, how do you really develop a system that's turnkey where people can give you money in something where, and again, the houseboat was a cool thing because you know, you and I can go invest our money, but it's, there's also a way you invest your money and you still have a nice emotional attachment to it. Yeah. Right. You know, if we, if we built a building and we had 12 suites in it and there were 12 of us and we all got a suite, we'd all have a, an emotional attachment to that. Yeah. And that's, there was a real learning part of that, that, that I would say that I, you'd never think about today, right? You invest in a company or somebody's idea, but this, this was a, you know, and, and every year, you know, and, and one of the early weekends in May, we'd have all the investors come out. They'd all bring their friends. We'd christen the boats. We'd, we'd all go up the lake. We'd have big barbecues together. And, and so it, you know, it was, it was just a really. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. And then yeah. they would bring their friends. And then the next year when we'd have a sales program, you know, their friends would be like, yeah, I'd be interested in buying one of these. So it was a. That's cool. Yeah, it was, it was just a, it was just a great you know, I mean, first of all, great business, but really just a great way to spend my twenties, right? I mean, oh, I look yeah. now and go, you know, best days of your life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure they're good now, yeah. but that sounds like a lot of fun. It was fun, especially in your 22 <laughs> through 29, I guess, yeah. or whatever. You sold it eventually. Uh, long story: we end up selling to a company called Go Vacations, who is an RV company, and and um, you know, we we ran into some trouble at the end when we tried to go public and. Uh, you know, there again another recession and but bad timing. Yeah, bad timing. But you know, great great learning curve and totally you know, awesome experience. Super fun. And uh, did I ever hear your partner's wife talk about his passing? Yes. Yeah, that made an impact. And uh, and my main takeaway was you idiotic entrepreneurs, you know, you think you're invincible. You think you're so busy that you don't have time to, uh, you know, get a physical or you have, don't have time to check on your health or any of that type of stuff. So what happened with him? He, he was, um, he got, he got, he passed away 10 years ago. He had prostate cancer yeah. and, um, too soon. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, you know, you always, you know, you, you know, anything medical, everybody wants to second guess. And certainly if you second guessed it, you'd think he would have, would have or should have gone and had it checked sooner. Um, but at the end of the day, he just had a very, very aggressive cancer. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I'm not sure, 
you know, cert- certainly the message would be that, you know, whatever, you, whatever you do with your health, do it sooner and get yeah. it checked and make it something you do much younger because yeah. all these health issues, so much more can be done now when you get it yeah. early versus late. But, um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was very close because we, you know, we'd been, we'd been partners. I, I had retired, um, at that time I retired for six years, uh, 15 years ago. And, um, and, uh, um, I just, we were, we were, but we were buying, (laughs) we were buying buildings and, and when someone would say, Phil would say, Hey, we've got this building in Seattle or Tucson or, or Monterey or Portland, come down and check it out. Hey, I got this deal. We got to go look at in San Francisco. I'd be like, you know, Phil, my son's got a hockey game tonight. Yeah. I'd rather go see his hockey game. I'm I'll go, I'll go tomorrow. Right. And then I realized you know, you can't go buy a $50 million building and be 50% in. Yeah. Like you better be 150% in because you're investing so much. There's not a room to make a mistake. Yeah. And um, so when he got, when he got diagnosed, that kind of drew me back into the business um, because, you know, he just really needed to just go and deal with his health. And so I kind of stepped back in and, and helped him. Yeah. And I don't want to miss speak for his wife. She had an amazing story and the message wasn't, um, you know, again, my takeaway, it was my own takeaway and it was basically like, just take a minute, make sure Jack and I understand his cancer was very aggressive and very much bad luck and maybe couldn't have changed anyway. Uh, but the, the takeaway I had was, yeah, no, that's clearly her story. Yeah. Her, her story is very much get checked, get checked early. Yeah. And, um, and you know, don't take stuff like that lightly when it's when the second you hear about it, yeah. do something about yeah. it. Yeah. And what a great so, guy he was. Totally. Yeah. yeah. He was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, you know, one of those once in a lifetime kind of people yeah. one, and just a, you know, just a once in a lifetime entrepreneur too. Yeah. He sounded like a beauty. So what years was that? You know, that was before EO, I guess. EO started in the nineties. Correct. So you had come out of retirement and were in the, in the real estate business, I guess. Yeah. We, How did um, that start? Well, again, another crazy story. Um, so, uh, I was living in Toronto after we uh, got out of three boys. Phil was in Calgary. Um, after I'd left Calgary, um, I decided I didn't want to stay in Toronto. Toronto, I thought was too big, but I also didn't want to go back to Calgary cause I felt Calgary was too small. So I decided, Hey, I'm going to come to Vancouver. Um, so that was, you know, called 25 years ago. And, um, and at the time, Phil and I decided that we were going to start buying little small apartment buildings, 25 suiters, 16 suiters, 14 suiters. And he had just gone to New York, um, and gone to the opening of the big Trump tower and, um, sitting around one night, you know, our, both our, both our parents played bridge and, you know, we're sitting around talking and my dad or his dad, I forget which one said, yeah, I got a hand for no Trump. And we said, oh, that'd be an awesome name. We should name our company Trump Developments. <laughs> so we went down to the corporate office that day <laughs> and we, we uh, registered the name, which we still have today, Trump Developments. <laughs> and so it's we- really valuable. And so we went all over Calgary and we bought eight sweeters and 14 sweeters. And we had a bunch of guys out of Toronto that really liked the idea. Now, keep in mind at the time, we're buying these at $25,000 a suite. Is this in the eighties or this is, uh, this is the early nineties. Okay. This is the early nineties. So we're buying them. We're fixing them up. 
we had a pretty standard thing. We put an awning on the front. We ripped out the carpet to show the hardwood floors. We painted the exteriors. We took all the bikes off the balconies and made the tenants clean up their balconies. And the $25,000 suite went to $35,000 suite. And somebody would come along and go, the beautiful building, they'd write us a check at $35,000 a suite. And we thought we were the two smartest guys in the world, right? <laughs> Not realizing that the... You know, the 40-unit the building in Lower Mount Royal that we sold at $35,000 a suite that today is 350000 a suite, <laughs> we probably should have held on to, yeah. right? So, you know, we had eight-sweeter called Trump Gardens, another one called, uh, we had a little taller one. It was four stories. We called that one Trump Tower. Uh, <laughs> had another 16-sweeter called Trump Plaza. And these were all sort of in an area in Calgary called Mount Royal. And just on the other side of 14th Street, um, in in Calgary, there's an area that's that's not Mount Royal. It's not quite as nice. And we bought that one and it didn't sell and we fixed it up and we barely made any money. And we called that one Trump Dump. <laughs> uh, so um, so that kind of that kind of got us into, uh, hey, this is a good thing. And then the Alberta government decided that they were going to blow out a whole bunch of buildings that that they owned, um, that they had mortgages on that they'd taken you know, when interest rates went up and they were now going to put them back on the market. So we went in and we wrote an offer on uh, a building in Calgary called Princess Crossing that we bought at $59,000 a unit for a concrete high rise in downtown Calgary. And um, we decided, hey, you know, we're going to, it was an apartment. We'll go get it, go get the, get it condo converted. And it kicked off our condo, con condo, condo conversion business. And we sold 259 units to about 200 different investors at an average of about $79,000 a unit, $80,000 a unit. So, you know, we did did pretty well. We made a nice chunk of money. Again, you know, probably should have held on because those are now worth about $450,000 a unit in downtown Calgary today. Um, but that kind of kicked us off and we said, wow, this is a, this is a really cool business. Let's yeah. go find buildings that are apartments that we can stratify them. And for about a six or seven year period, we became one of the largest condo converters in Canada. We converted, uh, I don't know, I think we were converting, I think we converted 15 or 16,000 units. Wow. Um, from apartments to condos. Apartments to condos. Alberta, BC, Ontario, Quebec, you know, you name it. We would just, we'd go find older buildings. We'd just do the same formula. Uh, and investors, you know, investors would say, hey, I want to, I want to build a portfolio I want to have five, six, seven, ten buildings. I want them geographically diversified, and I'm going to buy them. You know, and again, you know, these were times when the prices were, you know, I think when we started, the average unit was eighty to a hundred thousand dollars, and probably when we finished, they were just over two hundred thousand dollars a unit. So, you know, it was a, again, it was another really good business, and it, you know, funny enough, it played on a lot of the same skills that we had developed at Three Boys. Right. We built a sales team. We had multiple cities. We had, you know, the widget that we had was now a piece of real estate yeah. instead of uh, instead of and you said this investor buyer. That you Correct. Find. Yeah. Correct. And, you know, it was funny because at the time, um, you know, uh, I forget the guy's name. You'd, you'd know his name. The guy that, you know, come on my yacht and buy real estate. And he had all those TV commercials. Um, Tommy Vu, I think maybe was his oh, name or yeah. something. I haven't heard that right? in a yeah. while. So that, you know, they had, they had these kind of guys on TV and it was really just about how do you, you know, how do you replicate, uh, how do you get out of the cheesiness of it and go and find good investors 
and really just show people, hey, there's a good way, there's a really good way to own real estate. Um, uh, and in this case, uh, at that time, it was quite easy for investors to get multiple mortgages, which obviously the government's making and has made much harder to do today, right? So it was, a, again, we did that, I think, uh, you know, seven or eight years, just a, another awesome What does business. the government do to make sure people don't have multiples? I guess you have to register them on title, but beyond that, what is it? Well, they just ma- they're now making the, the qualification process so much more difficult to know mortgages. They can afford it. Yeah. So yeah, that, yeah. So, that, you know, they're now saying like they're even talking about passing it now that the minimum down payment is 35 percent. Right. So. Wow. So, again, you know, back then, you know, when we started, you, you could own five properties and put five percent down on yeah. five properties. Right. If so you could swing the payments. Yeah. If you could figure out how to how to make the payments. Yeah. So. So, again, we standardized it. We made rental pools. We did. Uh, you know, we funded the reserve funds. We did just a whole bunch of things that. uh you know, we're really cool. Yeah. F- funny kind of an end to the Trump story is that um, fast forward. So this happened all, you know, through the 90s, right? Yeah. Probably five or six years. And um, 2015, I get a phone call and it's a lawyer for Donald Trump out of New York City. Oh, And he says, uh, he says, I see that you have a building in Fort St. John called Trump Gardens. And he said, you know, you don't have the right to that name. And I said, oh, well, who has the right to the name? And the, the way we got to the name was I showed up in a in a marketing meeting and that we built this building and we were about to launch it and they wanted to call it Sterling Gardens. And I said, that's the worst name I've ever heard for a building in my entire life. Yeah. And people said, well, if you're so smart, then you come up with a name. I said, all right going to call it Trump Gardens. Yeah. And tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, if there's not a better name by nine o'clock tomorrow morning, it's getting named Trump Gardens. Yeah. And so everybody came in and threw the names around and we had a vote and everybody voted, said, no, you're right. Trump Gardens is the name. <laughs> yeah. So we end up calling it Trump Gardens. So I've got the lawyer on the phone and I phoned my lawyer and I said, look, this guy wants to have a call. He says, oh, please. I, I don't like Trump. This is before Trump was even involved in politics. He says, I don't like Donald Trump. He says, let me be on the call. He says, I'll do it for free. Yeah. I said, okay. So we get on the call and Trump's lawyer. And it, it wasn't the guy I went and looked up a couple of years later. It wasn't the guy that actually went to jail. Is that lawyer? It was a different lawyer. But, <laughs> um, um, so this guy gets on the phone and he says, you know, you don't have the right to the name. We have the name registered in Canada. You know, we spent all this time. And I said, oh, what year did you do that? And he said, I did that in 2001. So I said, did you go and look in the corporate registry from 1990? And I said, by the way, you know, I'm going to send you a PDF because I'd had a friend of mine drive by all the crappy buildings in Calgary and take pictures because they're still there today, right? Trump Gardens, Trump Place, Trump Dump. And so I had all these pictures. So I, it was really Trump Dump? No, we didn't name no. it Trump Dump. So I took the PDF of all the photos and I sent them all, I sent him all the photos. And and you know we could literally hear as hear as he's opening the pdf clicking through the photos so i said i said i'm not sure who you used as a lawyer but they probably should have checked the corporate registry because if anybody's offside right now using the name it's you guys it's not us we have the legal right to use the name and we used it long before trump was ever anything yeah so a week later trump ran for president Never heard back from the lawyer. Yeah, and not going to lie, I'm a little scared crossing the border every time. <laughs> Glad he's not the president anymore. But I'm pretty sure that, yeah, 
Yeah. That's like funny. One of these days crossing the border, someone's going to say, yes, custom, customs <laughs> would like to ask you about this name. Oh, I'll tell my dad that story. <laughs> Nobody hates Trump more than him. Uh, Stuck it to him a little bit. <laughs> so that was the, uh, the 90s, buying those buildings, starting EO. Yep. And then now it's quite a lot of buildings, right? But tell, what are you up to now? You're still doing the same kind of thing? So um, about eight years ago, actually a little bit longer than that, just before Phil passed away, Phil and I were speaking at a conference and the speaker after us was this really kind of a rock star gal, really young gal came on the stage and she had been buying and flipping houses in Phoenix. And um, so, you know, we got talking after she heard us speak and we heard her speak and she was like, yeah, I, w- I want to go and buy apartment buildings down in Phoenix. And, um, and I said, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm, it's not for me because, you know, my partner's been down there, you know, he's, he's out of the business because of his health. And, you know, I don't want to be flying down operating buildings. She goes, no, 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 I want to operate these buildings. I'm going to go and buy these buildings. So I said, well, you know, if you've got something and it's really good, call me, we'll go for coffee. So the next day she calls me and she comes by and she's got this building and it was owned by two school teachers. And it was, they had intentionally painted it lime green. And <laughs> why you had to ask, I'm sure. I, I, we have no idea, but it was like, it was the most horrid looking building that you'd ever seen. And it was like on top of everything else, why would you paint paint it? Yeah. And, you know, buildings are sold based on the rental income. And the rental income at the time had 20 of the units rented and eight of them empty. And the reason the eight were empty was because they'd stolen a fridge out of one to make a one unit full. And they've stolen a stove out of another one and they stole a dishwasher out of another one. And so eight units been parted out, had been parted out and they were selling it, which meant that if you put a fridge and a stove and a dishwasher in those units and got them operating, you were immediately going to make like eight units times about $200,000 just simply by filling up the building. And so Janet shows me the, the the pro form on it. And I said, well, what's the business plan? She says, well, the main business plan is we're just going to tow away the cars in the parking lot that don't have tires. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I go, what? That don't have tires? She goes, yeah, Dave, like this is a, it's a good neighborhood. It's out of town owners. They have no idea what they're doing. So I said, I, I said, how much money do you need? She says, I need 300 grand of equity. So I said, I'm in, I'll give you the 300 grand. So that night she calls me up my house and seven o'clock at night, my phone rings. I go, Hey, how's it going? She says, I've been thinking about it. I said, yeah. She says, I want you to invest with me, but I don't want just your money. I want you to go and find two other friends to put the money in because we're going to make so much money on this deal that when we do, I want to be able to call on you plus your two friends, not just you. Smart. And I thought, that's pretty smart. Pretty ballsy too, right? Here's, you know, kind of, you know, 30 year old, hasn't really raised any money. Yeah. And um, so I was like, okay, so got a couple of buddies, a couple of yo guys, threw some money in, you know, I think we made 70% a year on our money for two years. We flipped it out and just made a killing on the building. Right. Yeah. So a week later she comes and she says, I've got another deal, but instead of 300 grand, this one needs 10 million. So I'm like, holy smokes, $10 million, right? It's $50,000 a unit in Phoenix. It's in a, you know, it's, it's not in a great neighborhood, but you can just see it's wildly under rented and there's just huge potential to renovate the suites and put in washer dryers. So 
Uh, Tell me what year this is again. This is uh, eight years ago. And um, so I said, no problem. I said, uh, and if you meet Janet, Janet's really cool. She's a computer scientist. She's really, really smart. And in her world, there's zeros and ones, black and white. There's yeah. no, like it, she runs it through her Excel model. If it fits the model, we buy the building. If it doesn't fit the model, she doesn't buy it, right? It's not a, hey, what if we, no, it's, it's got to fit the model, right? Yeah. So we get this opportunity and, um, and Aussie Jerox putting on an event. I say, hey, I've got us speaking at this Aussie Jerox event, 300 people. We're on tomorrow night. So we get together, we put together a PowerPoint, we go to this Aussie Jurok event, we do the presentation as we're walking onto the stage. Now, I don't know Janet very well, right? Yeah. As we're walking on the stage, she turns around and looks at me and she goes, Dave, give me a minute. I think I'm going to throw up. Really? I'm like, what, what do you mean you're going to throw up? She well, goes, partner? Yeah. She goes, yeah, I, I, I don't like public speaking. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, Janet, you'll be fine. Come on, let's go. And so, you know, we went out there. And I think from one presentation, we raised seven and a half million dollars, just, you know, the first kind of launch of the whole thing. Wow. And then from there. So that was 125 deals ago. That was eight years. So in the last eight years, we've bought uh, 125 buildings in uh, five states. Janet who? Janet LePage. I know that name. Yeah. Western Wealth Capital. Yeah. And, uh, and so we bought 125 deals. And we have the same formula. We go in and we buy them. We fix them up. We renovate the suites. And it's all based on a mathematical formula. You get so much extra rent when you renovate a suite, so much extra when you put in a washer dryer. And <laughs> you um, told me about that once. Yeah. And it's so, Dave, what's your secret? He's like, you just put in a washer dryer. <laughs> just like people just, just can't even believe it. It's like you have no perspective for these people that lived without it. It's a game changer. It's a game changer. And yeah. we and we go in and we do it super, super fast. And we've got renovation teams and, and teams. And uh, yeah, we've bought, you know, uh, 20, 25, 26,000 units now. Wow. Um, and it's been fun. It's been just, uh, you know, and again, at, at the end of the day, you know, it's funny just now as I'm thinking, because I, I don't think I've ever had the conversation where I've connected all the stories, but the three boys story and the story of the condo conversions and the story of this it, it, you know, again, it's really just about this turnkey formula of getting in front of people. Like, we're all in the same problem in the world. We all have money to invest. And it's like, what are you going to do to invest it, right? Probably the last thing you want to do in the world is give your money to a stockbroker, yeah. right? And so we've all been jaded. We all feel like maybe we're being played a little bit by the system of the stock market. So we're certainly not putting in the amount of money into the market that we were once. Maybe we still are, but if we are, it's a much smaller amount. So yeah. now it's like, okay, I've got some cash. Maybe I'll put some money in some mortgage funds and I want to go into real estate. And so what we've been able to find with this is a scalable way where people can invest 25,000, 50,000, 100,000. I mean, we have guys that invest 250,000 or $500,000 in every deal. We do 10 or 12 deals a year and, you know, they just like it. They understand it. And, you know, the goal is it's identical, right? It's, a, it's yeah. we're doing the same thing to the buildings over and over and over again, which really takes a lot of the risk out of it. Yeah. I get it. It's, they, it's a, I, 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 I see how you thread it together. I mean, you're, you're doing kind of the same thing. You have a story around this investment and why it's good and you're repeating the process. I mean, the locations are different, but it's all around Phoenix, greater Phoenix still. Well, and it's all, it's all around the cities. It's very similar to Vancouver, right? You know, there's a, there's such an unbelievable story in Vancouver as to not just Vancouver, 
but where people are moving to, you know, people that are moving to Surrey and Vancouver Island and Kelowna, right? And it's like, if you get in front of the wave before the wave hits, yeah. you're going to make money in spite of everything else. You don't even have to be that smart, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Intel and Apple and Google and these big companies are leaving California because it's so expensive to operate. Well, just follow where they're moving to. They're moving to Vegas. They're moving to Phoenix. They're moving to Dallas. They're moving to Austin. They're moving yeah. to Atlanta. So if you just follow where they're going and, you know, what we try to do is get in and buy these 1980s buildings that, you know, what I say to people is you probably the day we buy the building, your university student son or daughter wouldn't live in the building. But three months after we own the building, when we've redone the pool and we've put in a clubhouse and we've added pool tables and a fitness center and we've renovated the suites and put in stainless steel appliances, love to live there. your kids would love to live there yeah. and they're going to pay three to four to $500 more than what the units were worth the day we took over. Yeah. Right. So if we can repeatedly do that and it's like, you know, it's kind of like your office space, right? You could be in a beautiful downtown office space or something that's kind of really groovy. And so it's, it's that same, it's exactly that same concept that we try to get across is how do you find the great neighborhoods and just repeat this formula. Yeah. And it's, it's wild because this opportunity in the States existed in Canada 25 or 30 years ago, really doesn't exist today. Like you can't really go find an old building and renovate it because they've all been done, yeah. right? Everybody's picked through them. And so, you know, those, and, and we saw it because we, we did so many of the condo conversions, yeah. right? Yeah. It's kind of been done, but it leaves me uh, thinking about, you know, the young up and comers, you know, what advice would you have for, you know, a young Dave Steele? nowadays he's 22 and wondering how they're going to find their path in the world well how old's taylor by the way my son taylor's 30 yeah. turns 30 this year my daughter's 28 and um i don't think i met her yeah and i you know i mean i i'm sort of you know i've sort of been the parent for the last 15 years where all the wayward kids in high school who I don't think my kid wants to go to university or they're not sure what they want to do. Would you go talk to Dave? Right. And it's like, these are for friends of yours or? for friends. Yeah. yeah. And I think a big part of that is, is because the kid that they want me to meet the son or the daughter is likely either a really strong salesperson or, or an entrepreneur. Yeah. And so maybe the two parents are from an accountant and a lawyer or yeah. a doctor and a, and you know, like Can't relate. Yeah, an engineer, like they're, they don't know that there's this whole difference that you see an entrepreneur and you go, yeah, that kid, that kid is going into sales. Like yeah. just get out of the way, find a way to direct him in, in him or her into somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but they're, but they're going into sales. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, I, you know, I'd say the same thing. It's like in a lot of cases, you can't force someone to be an entrepreneur. There's a certain, there's a certain something that, that's, I don't know if it's in the DNA, but, um, but if the people have that, then it's really just directing and realizing if I want to be an entrepreneur, I've got to go do the work. I've got to go and say, what field do I want to be in? What's the opportunity in that field? Who are the 10 people in that field I'm going to go talk to, right? Like, like you can't just say, I want to be an entrepreneur and sit on your couch and do this, right? So it's like, it's so, you know, what I'd say to anybody is there's, you know, the, all us old guys are getting out of business at some point here and there's going to be massive opportunities because there's just huge opportunity for lots of people if they want to step in and do it. Yeah. To do stuff and lots of equity out there too. Right. To back good ideas and, and young go-getters. 
What a great story, man. It's almost too good. Like it, it, that's why I worry about the young kids. Like your stories are a bit too good. They're just like, it, be, it seems like people are going to hear this and be like, that was lucky. <laughs> I mean, how that happened with the houseboats and you know, the small apartments and now what you're doing, it's uh well then maybe I should tell you the other story about all the money you lost. Oh, I've had lots and lots of those. Yeah. Tell me yeah, one of those. Yeah. So the first story I would tell you is I'm in university and, um, so I'd finished high school in California and, uh, why my dad, my dad worked for a big engineering company. And so we moved around a lot. And so we end up in, in California and I graduate high school, like skin of my teeth, not, not a great <laughs> student. And, um, I remember coming home and I'd applied to the university of Calgary and I didn't get in, but I got into Mount Royal college, which is like cap college or Kwantlen or yeah. kind of thing. So I get into Mount Royal and I get the letter and I'm quite happy that I got in. I go in and I show it to my dad and I go, dad, I got into Mount Royal. And, um, and he says, uh, he goes, Dave, that's, that's awesome. He says, Oh, got a bit of good news and bad news. I said, yeah, what's that? And he says, well, the good news is I'm really happy you got in. The bad news is your older brother, when he went to university, I paid for him and he dropped out after a year and it always bugged me. He said, I always wondered that if I hadn't paid for him, I wonder if he wouldn't have toughed it out and gotten through university. I'm thinking to myself, I don't like where this story's going. <laughs> so sure enough, he says to me, you know, I'm not going to pay for your university. You're in there. And I'm like, at this point, I have $100 to my name, right? I'm a high school kid. But he says, don't worry. I got you a job working up in Fort McMurray. And he says... It's six days a week, 12 hours a day, six in the morning till six at night, oh. and you'll make lots of money. And it's a two month job. So off I go to Fort McMurray and I come back. And at the end of the summer, I've got 5,000 bucks or something in my bank, right? Which is a, a million dollars, right? Yeah. But I got to pay for all my university, got to pay for my living. Like there's no, hey, hope it goes well. So I go down, I think I need a car, right? I don't have a car. I've been able to have no car up in Fort McMurray. So a buddy of mine tells me about a police auction. So I go to the police auction and I buy a 1966 Rambler for $52 at the police auction. Wow. And it doesn't have a hood and the windshield wipers don't work. Yeah. And as I drive down the highway, as people pass beside me, they come pulling up beside me and honking their horn as hard as they can. And they're pointing at my back wheel because it wobbles really, really badly. Yeah. Like it looks like it's going to fall off. And as they pull up beside me and realize that it, the back wheel's wobbling, as they pull up beside me, they realize the car doesn't have a hood. So at this point, they just hit the gas pedal and drive <laughs> just on. get ahead of this. Yeah. <laughs> so there was no, like, there was no golden spoon. There was no hay. There was like, yeah. and, you know, and I would say, I think the bigger challenge today is in our day, we could couch surf and we could live in a city for peanuts, right? Yeah. So, you know, when you went to, when you went to really start something up, you could do it with, you know, certainly a lot more like no money than what you could today. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, you know, for most of the time that we operated, it was lean times. It was never, you know, it was never like, wow, this is great times. Yeah. When did you, I mean, it must've been in the three boys days where you first felt like you made some real money. Those some big numbers, 1200 houseboats. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, they're, yeah. I mean, cause it was a, it was a sales season where we would sell them and then you'd have to have them all built. Yeah. So we'd sell them all in 
anywhere between August and October. And then you'd have to have all the boats built in time for the next season. Yeah. So we just had this, you know, we just had this cycle of, you know, just go like crazy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you see any, uh, any industries or any opportunities out there that you're too busy to take advantage of you want to share? Well, I, th I think they're in, you know, I think they're in every business, right? I mean, you know, it's just what people want to do and find passion about what they want to find passion about what they want to put technology to, yeah. what they want to go in and, you know, change the world and do, right? It yeah. could be everything from, could be everything from property management in the, in the real estate business. It could be anything from, you know, providing a service in the real estate. It's like, you just see it. I mean, you know, you take the property management business, right? They say, take on-site property management. They say the only job in the world that has lower job satisfaction than an on-site property manager is a prison guard. Really? Right. Okay. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so do you think you could go change that industry? Yeah. Right. Of course you could. Right. Yeah. That, and so, you know, that's one of the things we've set up to do just in the apartment business. It's like, it's like, how do you do things in the apartment world to make the people really want to work there to make the, to make it a way better experience for the residents. Right. Yeah. You know, what are those things you go and do? Right. And so again, if you look at that lens at any business that you want to do, you're going to have a successful business. It's just, you know, people get into their businesses and then they just, they just get caught up in doing it the way everybody else is doing it because they get busy with so much going on. Yeah. Also heard in your story too, you know, you, you look at what kind of the big guys are doing. And when you were small, it was like, you know, these two or three houseboat companies and what are they doing? And you see where the demand is and then you go where the demand is. And now you look at what the big employers, the big, cool, attractive employers are doing in what cities. And that's where the demand for apartment housing is going to be. Totally. And growth and all the copycat companies that go there and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, still doing the same thing and it, it seems to work. But I mean, you know, you you say what business if I'm a 20 year old and I want to start, yeah. you know, you, you could go today and get into the apartment business anywhere. Like you can't take old buildings and renovate them. So the only way to fix housing in BC is to build new housing. Yeah. So what do you need to do to be creative, to be a creative rental housing provider in BC, if that's your passion. Yeah. You can't take someone who has zero passion about it and say, you should go be in the rental business. Right? Totally. So, but if someone has a passion about it, the question is, Hey, what can you go do? Because, you know, you know, better than anybody, there's so much money out there for, you know, for someone who wants to go in and really do it the right way. Totally. Right? Yeah. And, it, and truthfully, it's a young person's sport yeah. because it, it really, you know, it's a, it's a go, go, go sport, which, you know, after you get to a certain age, you're, you know, you're, you got, we got lots of go, go, but not the go, go you had when well, you, you were just, 20. You don't need to. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to, so you don't. <laughs> right. Are you taking notes over there? <laughs> yeah. You know, they, Cassie, her friends, she's 23, her friends listen and they're like, could you please ask more questions about what my friends could do to have the kind of success that your friends are having? So I appreciate you sharing it. I mean, when you tell the story, it gets, you know, because of the time, it gets, it gets dumbed down. Summarized. Summarized. Yeah. And it gets summarized and you're right. The, yeah. The pain and the crap you go through gets left out a lot of it. Yeah. Right. But at the end of the day, it's, you just first have to decide if you're one of the people that wants to go for the ring. Yeah. Right. And most people don't make that decision. The day you make that decision everything else can change. Yeah. 
good spot to end it. Okay. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, Thanks for coming. That was fun. Appreciate it. Thanks, Cam.